If you are vulnerable to psychic damage from roguish language, stay away from these gibbering mouths. But if you intend on listening to this podcast about enriching your fantastical group hallucinations, you're too far gone already. Your next game is going to be indistinguishable from reality. Big claim. And here's why. In this episode, we're going to find some answers to how can we stay true to the characters we've brought to life? And how can we encourage it in others at the table? And how can we dive into the moments created at the table? Welcome to the Hook and Chance podcast. I'm Travis. And I'm his brother, Jordan. We've got a guest joining us today. He's a freelance author with over a decade of experience, having worked for Wizards of the Coast, Cobalt Press, Alia Publishing Group, Jetpack 7. He's always coming up with new creative ideas for providing options in D&D, like fleshing out the Kenku as a playable race in 4th edition. And he's created class options like alien-influenced warlocks, gunslingers, necromancers. It just goes on and on. A lot of really cool stuff that uh, he's created. So, yes, welcome, David Gene Adams. Hi, thanks for having me. So with all of that wild stuff going on, do you have any concepts floating around that you haven't disclosed yet? I mean, I am definitely a big science fantasy fan. Uh, John Carter of Mars, the OG Barrier Peak, uh, stuff like that very much inspired the Alien Warlock pack that, I'm cre- uh, that I create. Um, I actually got that completely done in... I think maybe six, seven hours. It was like a one-day thing. Nice. I've got a, a massive back catalog of that kind of content, trying to thread the needle between that sort of extraterrestrial influence and classical fantasy. Tons of content out there for that, some of which I may have an opportunity later in 2020 uh, to kind of make public. Uh, so you may see some of that out excellent we can do a little bit more of a tease later on <laughs> what exactly that might mean and what to be on the lookout for mysterious love it <laughs> <laughs> so does that is that what your home game looks like then I, I do have a lot of that in there it generally tends to be subtle okay I, I gauge a lot of that by my audience i have some players that are definitely like that's their peanut butter um <laughs> and others that that want to keep that out of the chocolate so <laughs> um, Fair enough. But yeah, yeah, definitely. I'm a big fan of that kind of anachronism in games, uh, which is why, yeah, a lot of that stuff, the gunslinger, the uh, alien warlock, why a lot of that comes naturally for me. You build it in in a way that totally works with that classic fantasy without taking it too far off that path if you don't want it to. Yeah, it's nice to, to notice that that is noticed uh, in my work. I try as much as can be done to make that palatable to an audience that may think that they don't want it. Right. They just want to dip their toes and see how it treats them. Yeah. Well, and I think this is why you're kind of the perfect person to talk about immersion, because when there is those elements that are hard for some people to kind of get through and get past, most people, I think, can grapple with like traditional fantasy because we've been exposed so much to you know, Lord of the Rings-esque, very traditional fantasy. But then you start throwing in, like you mentioned, John Carter of Mars, and there's just these other kind of worldly elements that that get thrown into that fantasy 
I feel like there's a lot of people that that would almost break their immersion because they're not as comfortable with that kind of fantasy. So being able to work those in naturally is is a real skill. Yeah, you've got to really be able to to identify the touch points in the genre that you're trying to graft the these external concepts to. Um, and when you do that, you can highlight the ways in which the two are connected that other people might just sort of overlook. Yeah. Right, yeah. What started you down the path of actually being an author of these things and submitting them to the places you have? Yeah, so uh, biggest influence was really the the Baldur's Gate computer RPG. Right on. I picked up the original about six months before the sequel released. Oh. So I spent a lot of the mid to late 90s glued to the computer screen playing those games. <laughs> Fast forward a year or two, and I walked into a local Walden Books, and in the gaming section where you'd find like your prima strategy guides for all the latest video games there were a couple of these dungeons and dragons books and i recognized the logo from this computer game that i've been playing uh, but really had no idea of like the profound impact that the game had had right would have been third edition so i picked that game up and i'm a tinkerer by nature i'm sure a lot of other dms are like this but i mean i was quickly creating way more stuff than the group that I played with could even keep up with. So I had two or three drawer filing cabinet that was just stuffed full of this stuff. And so eventually in college, as stuff on the internet was becoming more connected to daily life, I started to really recognize that actually there was this huge community out there and found out that that Wizards of the Coast had a process that prospective authors could reach out to them with proposals for content for things like the Dragon and Dungeon magazines at the time. So that got me super excited. I put together a bunch of stuff. I was ready to send it out to them. And they shut down the magazines and announced that they were working on the fourth edition of the game. (laughs) That was heartbreaking when those magazines shuttered. Yeah, yeah. I had one entire adventure featuring uh, this whole infestation of were-rats in a sewer and a big mystery. It was ready to go, and then boom, uh, nothing. So I definitely kept close tabs on what was going on with 4th edition, and when they announced the submission process for the new online versions of Dragon and Dungeon, I flooded them. I sent Chris Perkins, probably 300 proposals. (laughs) And of those, I got like three actual articles out of them. But yeah, and so working through that process with them really inspired me to take a look at what other publishers were doing. So I reached out to Monty Cook and the Kobold Quarterly Magazine and did some stuff for them. And so that just started me down a path of taking a lot of this excess content that I had, some of the stuff that I was really passionate about, and and finding people that I could partner with to get that content in front of others. Very cool. It sounds like you cannot be stopped. Yeah, it, it, <laughs> it comes very naturally. Well, we should probably move on to the main event and start getting your thoughts on game immersion. And we're going to do that in Kinship Camp. This is Kinship Camp, where rich histories 
and diverse quirks are explored between weary adventurers around the safety of the fire. So for this segment, we asked David for some of his advice and wisdom on staying involved and present in games and how to get into it a little bit more. So his first idea was to think and catch phrases, which I'm genuinely pretty curious about. So David, do you want to kind of just run us through what you mean by this and how it helps? Yeah. So if I were to say it's morphin' time, a lot of people <laughs> that recognize what that's from, they already have a, a good idea about what's going on, where we're at in the story, what's about to take place. And that's kind of what you want from a good catchphrase. It's a punchy bit of dialogue or or even just a description of character action that you can use repeatedly in the same set of circumstances and eventually in a kind of Pavlovian relationship, that catchphrase or action description becomes a kind of signpost for what is about to happen next. These catchphrases often also have a distinctive flavor to them that indicates the kinds of qualities of the character that's using them. Yeah, makes sense. So it's kind of just like a, a, a signpost for where you're at. Yeah, it's sort of a way to indicate what am I doing? Why am I doing it? What is the mood or disposition that I have in doing it? And how does that relate to me as a character saying this particular thing? I love them so much because of the Baldur's Gate franchise. Oh. Um, so for those not familiar, you meet a number of NPCs that you can recruit as companions on your adventure. And the catchphrases there that those characters have, primarily they're just there to alert you as a player to the decisions that the AI that's running those NPCs has made. If they spotted an enemy that they're running off to attack, if they're critically wounded in need of healing and so on. And those things aren't really innovative. You can find tons of other games that do that. But I really love them because of the amount of character that oozes out of the voice acting and even just the dialogue. Like when you read it written down and you can find all kinds of wiki articles that compile all these catchphrases that those characters use. But they're just they're just so good. <laughs> Every one of those little AI battle cries really reinforces the absent-minded goodness or stoic resolve of those characters. And really, I think they're so useful because their main purpose is when you're not paying attention and one of your little characters runs off to go attack something that it saw like you as a player need to know that and that little catchphrase that lets you know what's happening and i think that's why they're so useful for immersion is that they're not they're not tools necessarily to keep you the player using the catchphrases immersed they're meant to pull the entire group in so that they know what you're doing, why you're doing it, and to keep that at the top of their mind so that they are immersed when they're not active in the portion of the scene that's occurring. So yeah, it sounds like it allows for a lot less of that clarification on exactly the maneuvers that characters might be performing because, like you said, it's happened before and this is just kind of the way it works. When you have a catchphrase for your character, you don't have to say as a player and breaking that immersion, hop out and say, oh, I'm going to go and attack that kobold over there. You're saying, you know, one's getting away or something like that. Do you have any examples of catchphrases that your characters have used? 
Oh, goodness. Probably too many to really think of. I used to do a thing. I had a dwarven wizard illusionist who was formerly a member of a thieves guild, got kicked out. So he's all shaven, uh, missing a finger from that prior transgression. But he was he had a lot of apathy towards combat. And so one of the things that I always did with him is he would say, I'm growing tired of this or some variation of that before he would cast his highest available spell level. <laughs> nice. Okay, so yeah, it's also got that potential for setting a really cool scene. Yeah, and, and those are the kinds of things that I think that you're looking for when you're trying to create catchphrases. What things can you do that you know indicate what you're doing, why you're doing it, and that, that some quality that your character has. And so do you kind of just like collect them as you play? Yeah, so I mean, really, if you want to get into how to create good catchphrases, in my opinion, you do it the same way that you create any good idea. You consume lots of diverse media and entertainment, and then you just keep spitting out more and more ideas. Eventually, through dumb luck, you're going to end up with a few that are good. Nice. Yeah, that's fair. That's basically my process is just iterate on these ideas until eventually you've accidentally found a few gems. But as you're going through this kind of brute force process, you want to keep in mind the character that you're creating them for. If you have played Dungeons and Dragons before, and if you've played it a lot, you can think back to situations that you've experienced before and imagine what your current character might have said or done in those situations and create some catchphrases from that. Because, I mean, we've all played enough Dungeons and Dragons to know that there's nothing new under the sun. It's a lot of the same sorts of situations, scenarios, monsters, encounters. Um, so you can recycle that experience if you've got it. If not, think about movies that you've watched or stories that you know well and focus on a few emotions that are at the center of your character's perspective. Almost like you're an amateur psychoanalyst. You can imagine your character's reaction you know to things like oh since it's fresh on my mind what would your character do if they were left you know alone with intruders trying to break into a house that they're in my character would hide bar the doors yeah definitely stimulating some ideas of the the catchphrases that you're talking about just with you kind of giving that prompt yeah because i'll do things like i had a big barbarian character once that didn't do a lot of talking but right before he would rage, fly into his rage, and go uh, viciously attack a target, he would crack his neck and crack his knuckles and grab his axe. And so after doing that a few times and setting that up, I was then able later, during an interrogation that he was getting impatient with, he cracks his neck, he cracks his knuckles, he reaches for his axe, and the other characters knew, oh, no, we've got to talk him down. <laughs> That's awesome. I don't even know the characters, and I'm in the scene. That's perfect. And so, th so that was basically a, a catchphrase for this character. But that's kind of what you're going for. You, you want to be able to establish a catchphrase so that you can use it in a situation that is essentially going to demand that the other players interact with you. And without a word being spoken, they know what they need to do. Yeah. And then... The more that my players have seen me do this, the more they've started experimenting with it as well. And the more that they've done it, the more those catchphrases tend to come up in the stories that they're telling about 
the stuff that we've done in the games. And that's when you really know that you've got the buy-in from those players in this story that is going to be core to keeping them immersed in those times when immersion is going to be difficult. Totally. That's amazing. Well, I completely get it. Thanks for giving us all that. But I'm going to try and put you on blast a little bit here. What's your worst catchphrase? (laughs) What makes a catchphrase bomb hard? (laughs) Just so we know what to stay away from. I think sometimes you have to be careful about the action that your catchphrases promises. If you run a game where you can fumble on a crit failure, you have to be very cautious about having catchphrases that overpromise. You know, you can't really like, you know, shout out, you know, I'm going to bla- bathe in the blood of my enemies and then, you know, run in there <laughs> as a third level rogue and crit fail your sneak attack. <laughs> you have to be a little bit more subtle about that. And sometimes too, I think for home games, when it comes to running stuff in private, um, borrowing catchphrases from entertainment that you and your friends enjoy is a really smart idea because you get basically get to skip that entire phase of establishing the tone of the catchphrase because the movie that you're taking it from has already done that for you. And those memories are, are very powerful in people's minds. So yeah, that makes sense. Uh, yeah. The only thing you have to be aware of there is whether or not the rest of your group has actually seen that movie and remembers that quote. Otherwise, you're the only person feeling the moment. <laughs> Everyone else is just looking at you. Right, right. And so then you can have a catchphrase that kind of yeah. lands flat because nobody gets it. Yeah, that uh, that one danger you mentioned just reminded me of, I've been listening to Not Another D&D podcast, and that's exactly what one of the characters does. He's a fighter and he's got a catchphrase, watch this. And the first handful of times he used it, he terribly failed. So now it's it's his joke catchphrase because it <laughs> definitely doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. Well, and I mean, you can certainly turn that around and embrace that if that's appropriate, like for the tone of your campaign. Yeah. If you have, I mean, I've, I've played numerous characters where here we go again has become you know, the catchphrase of watch me fail. And that works, works just as well in the right circumstances, uh, especially if you're, you know, trying to do those really tricky transitions from a moment of like high suspense or drama, and kind of bringing that back down. So everyone has a moment to sort of take a breath before the next rising of action. Speaking of that kind of rising and falling action and mood, that was another one of your recommendations is mirroring the mood so yeah maybe you can tell us a little bit about how you create a mood at the table and lean into it yeah so really when it comes down to it during the game the mood is kind of the aggregate tone that's being used in it moment to moment so for for any particular action that anyone is describing at the table you can through your choice of words influence the tone that that description has you can make it humorous you can make it dramatic you can make it frightening you can make it blase and so when everyone is on the same page using the same tone in the same way at the same time that is what we as players notice as a mood fair enough and that's what people tend to do naturally just in in their everyday lives do you have any ways that you kind of encourage that cohesion Yeah, um, I mean, mindfulness is key because mood is an emergent 
property of the conversant aspect of role-playing games. Um, any tool that's going to help you pay attention and be present in that ongoing conversation pays dividends when it comes to helping you keep a consistent mood at the table. So, I mean, I mean, this is one where you definitely have to be mindful of the interests and needs of everyone at your table. A lot of the conversation on immersion tends to focus on personal immersion, stuff that you can do yourself to make your experience of suspending disbelief during the game easier. Um, but, but when it comes to mood, it's a lot more like going out to the movies. If you've got disruptive audience members, that can really pull you out, no matter how committed you are to that movie. You really need everyone on the same page. So part of making sure that the mood is working is making sure that everyone recognizes that they're all connected to the experience of everyone else at the table and that your performance isn't just for you. It's got the ability to carry an even greater impact when it is helping other people at the table remain immersed because those people are then less likely to disrupt your experience of immersion. Well, you're hitting on every one of the things that kills me at my core when I'm going to see films, but I really like that analogy of going to the movie because everyone knows that feeling of somebody popping out a phone and just pulling you out of that very dramatic moment that is currently happening. Or the inverse of that, the good side of that, is I've been to a few movies in the past where everyone in the theater was on that exact same wavelength, and there is something about that electricity in the room when everyone is fully on board a movie, and you can just feel that tension at every beat every single story beat throughout that that film so definitely affects me uh, <laughs> in a yeah. in a pretty deep way a tabletop group is such a smaller intimate setting that one person pulling back it creates such an impact and like you said they they don't necessarily realize it they just think that they're they're letting things continue on without them but you are a huge part of it no matter what part of the game is happening right now yeah, and, and that's one of the reasons why I think the catchphrases and what you're able to do with them are such a real kind of low-hanging fruit way of building mood. You know, they, they, give, they give you the ability as a player to sort of signal the tone in that moment. You know, like, do you as a player, do you want things to, is there too much tension? Do you want that to start to be diffused? Well, you know, throw out your witty catchphrase and hopefully the other players are going to recognize that like, oh, now is the time where we start to pull this tension down and off of that. Or, you know, are you itching for action? Then you throw out, you know, your, your battle cry or, you know, whatever it is that sort of is that impetus to get everyone to kind of recognize that like, you know, it's time to move on and be active. And then you have the ability to with, with those catchphrases to, to do things like we talked about with the, you know, crack in the neck, crack in the knuckles to really, you know, take that moment to when you notice that other players are starting to have their attention and focus wane, you know, rather than, 
let them do whatever, you know, sketching or doodling or dice clicking that they might otherwise be inclined to do, you give them this invitation to say, no, come back, focus on the game. You know, let's, let's do this fun little bit here together. Yeah, that makes sense. And at the core of that, it's almost like you're saying, hey, something is changing. You can be a part of that. Yeah. And I think this is something that a really good DM learns to do. It's one of those things that it's newer DMs ask, what can I learn to become a better DM? And I think that's Mm -hmm. one of the biggest points is that you can pitch an idea for a game that is a gritty, realistic fantasy or a really lighthearted high fantasy or whatever the case may be. But you can't always do the exact same thing throughout an entire campaign. It has to undulate and there has to be moments that the the more lighthearted people at the table can have their moment to shine and it's not always dismal and dreary. And then of course the, the opposite is true. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's like if you take uh, the Lord of the Rings trilogy and I don't know if you're familiar with Gallivant, but uh, it, if you're not, definitely check that out. But but they're both essentially fantasy stories. The tone of Lord of the Rings is definitely more dramatic, suspenseful, full of import. But there are still jokes and you know moments of lightheartedness, levity, tenderness uh, in there, even though the main tone of that story is is very different from those individual moments where Gallivant is completely the opposite. I mean, it's borderline slapstick, lots of, you know, crude, crass jokes, but there are still moments of suspense, of drama in that story, despite the fact that the overall tone does not match that of those moments. So, so yeah, you have to, I think, regardless of the type of game that everyone has agreed to play, you have to recognize that a, a good story is going to possess moments of lots of different kinds of moods, regardless of what, you know, kind of the main experience of that story is intended to be. And I would argue that it has to. You have to push the story into those moments um, or guide it. <laughs> or let it be taken there. And or not let try it be taken, yeah. And rein not... it back in too quickly. Yeah. And I think one of the things that I have seen happen over the last five to 10 years is that there's been a lot more recognition that that players aren't passive in their games and that a lot of the things like controlling the tone that we used to expect dungeon masters to do, players can take a lot of ownership of and make it easier for both them to experience the things that they want to experience in the game and make it easier for the dungeon master to run the kind of game that everyone at the table wants. Totally. Yeah, that's really important. You know, interaction with other players at the table, just sensing that mood and really allowing yourself to just be like letting a a wave wash over you (laughs) in terms of that, that general mood and just going with it you know, it is at its core, a collective storytelling experience. So we have to be a part of that, that collective. But you had another point here about interacting with and through other characters. Can we dive into that a little bit? Yeah, I mean, I think this is really kind of the culmination of what 
you want to be able to do in terms of influencing the mood and utilizing your catchphrases to their maximum capacity. Most role-playing games allow for your group of players to possess a diversity of capabilities so that typically, and this is not always the case, but typically no two players at the table are able to do exactly all of the same things. That's by design. Practically every edition of Dungeons and Dragons that there's been, now obviously, you can have a group entirely made of wizards, but but generally the the game sort of doesn't reward you for that style of gameplay the way it does when you have a group with a multitude of different types of characters. So eventually, as a player, you need to allow the other players to help you because they're going to have capabilities that you don't. And and this was really uh, something that I came to recognize through a multitude of years of retail management. You know, I, when I got started down that trajectory, I was definitely the kind of person who was like, nope, I can do this better than anybody, so I'm going to do it all. And I think a lot of new players kind of, they, they, they feel a little bit that way when they start playing, that like, if they have an objective as a character in the game, they feel that the responsibility is 100% on them to obtain that objective, where, you know, in reality, that they're going to need to engage the other players. One, for the simple reason that those other players have different trajectories, different relationships with NPCs, that can easily pull the entire story away from the objective that you have as a player. So you've got to do at least a bare minimum of negotiating to get that time to pursue that that path. But often what I found in retail is that, you know, yes, I could do all these tasks individually, but they're going to get done a lot faster and other people are going to be more likely to to interact with me positively if I'm giving them the opportunity to do things as well. So it was that kind of that, that give and take that really made it much easier for me to see how interacting with and through the other players at the table really makes a difference. And then fundamentally, what you're doing is creating these opportunities again for players to remain immersed when you're asking them for help with you know your quest to avenge your father's murder uh, because you know you're not good at talking to people and there is someone out there who knows the secret of who killed your father like you need to recruit that bard get him invested in what's going on so that he can help you find out who it is that murdered your father and then you know maybe you need the wizard to scribe you a couple of scrolls so that you can make yourself invisible, sneak up on this guy, you know, really get him uh, and, and take care of things. Um, so, so I think really, you know, you, you've got to make a lot of this about getting everyone involved. I think that creates a lot of depth in those other characters that are helping as well, because it lets those players kind of make the decision for how that is going to shape their character and what they think of this goal and if get dive into all the morality of it and it just just opens things up a lot so that makes sense yeah i think a lot of people do this like instinctively when it comes to small scale stuff 
you know, you'll see them, you know, negotiating in terms of like what order of locations to visit, but they, they don't really see yet how they can take those same sorts of negotiations that they're doing and really, you know, extend them through everything. Um, and often with negotiations, right? Like you, you can't be entirely self-centered in what you're asking for and what you're offering. Like you have to be open to, you know, you scratch my back, I'll scratch yours. And so that then gives you an opportunity, you know, because let's raise your hand if you've ever started playing a game and you've had some sort of grand quest in mind when you created your character. And after a few game sessions, you quickly tire of it. <laughs> a lot of people have been there. And so when you're willing to negotiate and involve yourself in other players' backstories, you might find that, oh, John here actually had a really cool idea that is way better than mine, and I want to be a part of that. And now you're talking with John, like, you know, like, how can we, what can we do? Can we, you know, plot together how we're going to achieve this next step of yours? And, and so, yeah, it, it gives you a lot more opportunity to evolve the story because you're not stuck with just the story that you came up with for your one character. Yeah, and, and going down some of those pathways can help you, can give you the time to come back around to whatever grand vision you have and evolve it. You as a player have a lot of responsibility to pull in all of the other players at the table and engage character to character. So I've created this character, and now I have to find a way to make sure that every one of those other characters at the table has some kind of personal investment. And I think, you know, just some cursory sit down, plan, think, and say, okay, how can I get, you know, I, I'm a wizard with this deep emotional backstory about my long lost sibling. How do I get the barbarian invested in that in, you know, on, a, on an emotional level or just even a story level? Oh, we both lost family members, um, but yours is gone. Maybe you can help me, that kind of thing. And of course, how do I get invested in that barbarian story as well when it does come up little bits of it maybe trying drawing that out creates that uh, character to character gameplay as well anyone that doesn't have a lot of experience with games outside of dungeons and dragons and its derivatives there are a lot of more modern games that will actually have kind of structures or questionnaires built into their character creation process that actually will actively ask you to do those sorts of things. To take one example, Dungeon World does this in its character creation. It asks you to pick one other player to, you know, be a close friend and then allows that player that you select to be, you know, your close confidant. They then get to decide like, do they reciprocate that relationship or do they just like let you believe that? <laughs> and for a lot of these, like there's there's no reason why you can't just lift that process wholesale into any game and use those types of questions to help you make those connections so that when it comes time to play, you know, these things that we've talked about being involved and getting other players involved with your stories is so much easier. Yeah. Well, Thank you for all of this. Like, this has been a remarkably enlightening episode. What are you working on right now that we should all be aware of? You alluded to something earlier. 
Yeah, so I can't divulge too many details, um, but I am working with Jetpack 7 uh, right now, and they've got some cool team members that I think people will be pretty excited to see contributors for this next book or books. Right on. But they're working on a Kickstarter, I believe, uh, summertime right now is is what we're looking at, uh, launching another Kickstarter through them. And no spoilers, but if you are a fan of new player options, what we're working on will have an abundance of stuff for you to enjoy. I know so far my contributions have been a lot of fun, like personally to work on, but it's been really neat too, talking with the team. They have an awareness that player-focused products tend to get a little bit of uh, side-eye from Dungeon Masters, and they don't want anything that we're going to be creating to disrupt ongoing campaigns. So we're taking a look at some ways that we can be very upfront about how the content that will be in this book will impact certain aspects of gameplay, just so that everyone, you know, is aware, like, if you tend to run a very tightly controlled game, you know, these options over here are probably not appropriate for your group versus if you don't care and you want to run wild, boy, have we got some stuff to show you. That's really cool. And that's such a, a refreshing take from a third party, you know, content creator is that presence of mind to say, I've thought about the long-term ramifications of this new character class. Cause some of us do love playing in some pretty wild high fantasy settings and other like low fantasy. And so that, uh, that's really cool to see because so many times looking at that content, you're just, you're wondering if it's going to merge. You're wondering if this is just some cool idea somebody wanted to get out or if it's actually been thought through like that. So nice. And some of the other work that you're currently in the middle of. So I've got some ambitions to do some stuff with some other systems. I've over the past year or so, um, I've gotten involved in a lot of cool conversations, cool products that I have seen and purchased and been personally interested in coming out of kind of the indie scene, story games, some of the genres that people like to fight about whether or not they're kind of that old school renaissance uh, type of game. But there's there's some cool stuff in a lot of different places that the design aesthetic just sort of speaks to me. And I think it'd be really cool to get in, uh, particularly to the second edition of Black Hack. Um, I've got some stuff I'm working on to sort of D&Dify that game. If I can get the time, I, I want to do some refreshes on a few of the things that I've got on DMs Guild, maybe put some more content out there on drive-thru. But yeah, uh, right now with two kids, one of which has just started his first year of kindergarten, there's not a lot of time. <laughs> That's fair. Sounds like you've got some exciting things coming out. We're going to put all of your stuff in our show notes so that any listeners can find it. Of course, you can find David on Twitter at level2npc. We'll have that for you as well spelled out just in case and uh, is there any any other wisdom you want to drop before we wrap the show up uh no i i just appreciate uh, the opportunity to to come on share my passions 
with both of you and with your amazing audience. If anyone does want to discuss anything we talked about today in greater detail or find some of the sources that inspired my perspectives, they should definitely reach out on social media. I'm hoping in 2020 to be a little bit more active than I, I have in the past. Um, but if they have a little patience with the slow pace that I operate on, um, I love hearing from and talking with as many people as possible. And social media is just a great way to kind of keep tabs on what I'm working on and to see all of the cool ideas from other games that I'm inspired by that keep me passionate and involved in the craft. Um, I share tons of those. Well, cool. I, I hope that we're part of that collective and we'll definitely stay in touch as well. Yeah. Thanks, guys. We've got... Thinking in catchphrases, interacting with and through other characters, and mirroring the mood. So consider that. Reach out to David. Reach out to us. Let us know how you use it and what you think. So thanks very much for joining us, David. This has been an awesome episode. Thanks to Tabletop Audio for the sound effects that you hear in this episode. You can follow us at Hook and Chance on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, Discord, and Reddit. And if you're ready, David. Catchphrases, everybody. Catchphrases. <laughs> Thanks, Thanks for, for listening, listening and, and not this again. Great games. <laughs> nice. <laughs>